0: Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jacobowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti, lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain, sleepless nights, shallow breathing, Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook people who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a saint's split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Max the cat is not joining us today. In fact, all three cats are hiding somewhere, or maybe they're hosting a podcast of their own. Maybe it's called Nine Lives, the podcast. Today I'm posing and answering 10 common questions in the area of family law. I have used this Q&A format before on my blogs, and the posts showed a lot of interest from readers, so I thought I would adapt the format for this podcast as well. Here we go. Question number one. I have heard the word retainer when a lawyer is being hired. What does it mean? Here's my answer. Depending on the context, the word likely means one of two things because the same word can be used in two different situations. Here is one use for the word. A retainer is an agreement signed between a lawyer and their client, setting out the terms on which the relationship between them is formed. For example, the retainer agreement would talk about the billing rate. In other words, how much per hour of work the lawyer charges. How often bills called accounts are issued, meaning rendered what the scope of the lawyer's work actually is. In other words, what they are to do for the client in general terms. So, for example, the lawyer is retained to negotiate a separation agreement or to deal with a court proceeding. That would be confirmed in the retainer agreement. The retainer agreement once signed by the lawyer and their client formally establishes the relationship between them. Some are quite long and detailed like mine. Some are one pagers. I like to address as many issues up front as possible so we can have a clear understanding of uh, what we're doing together and how. Some lawyers prefer to hit just the key points. The length and the detail of the retainer agreement is largely a matter of the lawyer's personal preference. Here is the other use of the word. The word retainer is also used to refer to the sum of money which the client provides to the lawyer when he or she is first hired, and possibly from time to time. So it's a monetary retainer. It's essentially a sum of money provided by the client which the lawyer deposits into a trust account. The lawyer is entitled to dip into that pool of money and pay themselves using it only once the lawyer issues an account and for the amount of the account only. Here is an example to illustrate the point. Let's say that the retainer provided is $5,000. And the first account issued by the lawyer is $1,000. Once the bill is issued to the client, the lawyer is entitled to take out of the trust account the $1,000 representing that bill for work completed. The remainder, the the $4,000, stays in trust. When the next account, the next bill for work done is issued, the balance of that account can once again be taken from the trust account and so on. Once the retainer is depleted, the lawyer asks the client to replenish it, to top it up. Two more things about the monetary retainer. Some lawyers ask for a retainer upfront but they do not use it to pay their accounts the way I have described. They keep the money in trust until the very end of the case, and only then they use it to pay for the final account. In those cases, the client has to pay the sequential accounts as they are rendered without the use of the initial retainer, and in addition to that initial retainer. Some lawyers only ask for an initial retainer and then once that is used up, the client is billed in the normal course and has to come up with payment for each bill as they get it. Others ask for a new retainer once the first one is used up. So overall, the point to make here is that When it comes to monetary retainers, individual practice can vary. But overall, I've described the most common practice. Question number two. I am separated from my spouse. She has a lawyer. Can my own lawyer write to my spouse directly? Here's my answer. In Ontario, the answer is no. Once someone is represented by a lawyer, that lawyer becomes his or her legal representative. In other words, that person cannot be bypassed in communications from the lawyer. So again, to illustrate the point, a lawyer for the wife cannot write directly to the husband if the husband has a lawyer. Of course, the existence of that lawyer for the husband has to be known. If the husband has a lawyer in the background only, advising him behind the scenes, so to speak, but the husband is otherwise representing himself, the lawyer for the wife is not expected to have a crystal ball to figure that out. So there's no problem in this case with the wife's lawyer writing to the husband directly. But once a lawyer comes on the scene for the husband, all communications from the wife's lawyer have to go through the husband's lawyer question number three when I first met with my lawyer in the early stages of my case it felt like we had a plan for dealing with the issues a strategy I thought I understood the steps my lawyer was proposing it's now six months later I'm getting more and more confused and I don't really understand where we are now and what will be happening next. What should I do? Here's my answer. Most importantly of all, you should feel comfortable approaching your lawyer and sharing with him or her the fact that you feel a little lost. This is your case. You are perfectly entitled to understand what is happening and why. In fact, from my perspective, It is helpful to have a client who is actively involved. That way we can make informed decisions about the case together. So what should you do if you are unclear what is happening in your case. If you have not heard from your lawyer in a while for example and you're uncertain about next steps. Ask for a regroup meeting or call. I find those meetings very helpful, including to me because they give me and my client a chance to review strategy, to reconnect about the bigger picture, to see where we have been and where we are going, and to consider if we need to adjust in any way our plan for handling the case. You should feel comfortable reaching out this way and asking for that discussion. Question number four. My lawyer asked me to fill out a financial statement form and also to provide backup documents for it. That was a month ago. Since then, her law clerk has sent me three follow-up emails. I've looked at the blank form. It's so long and complicated. Since the separation, I have found that the only way I can function from day to day is to not think about my separation. I simply can't bring myself to fill out the form. I don't have it in me. I sit in front of it and cry. What can I do? I'm worried this is affecting my case. Here is my answer. First, and most importantly, you should not beat yourself up about feeling this way. It's not uncommon when relationships end. You might consider doing two things. Firstly, reach out to your family physician. Tell him or her how you are feeling and why if they don't already know you're separated. The point here is to determine whether the way you feel is the expected sadness at separation. The normal sadness if there is such a thing. And I always say that each person and their experience is different and unique. But there is an average expected period of emotional adjustment. Or whether your feelings and emotions have reached a stage where they interfere with your ability to function. If that is the case, you may need further help by way of counseling or medication, for example. This is important. There are people available to help you. You should not be facing this alone. So seek that help. I encourage you to do that. Second, get in touch with your lawyer's office. Tell your lawyer or their staff what is happening, what you're experiencing. There is no shame in this. None at all. No stigma. We have experience dealing with clients who are facing this type of inertia, feeling frozen, paralyzed, and there are ways to help you out. Uh, To begin with, it is important to figure out whether a delay in completing the task you are facing, which in our example is a financial statement, will cause prejudice to your case. Lawyers use this word, prejudice. What does it mean in this context? The question is whether the delay will hurt your case, cause a situation which is unfavorable to you. For example, if the other side has started a court case and you are expected to respond to it within a specific timeline and you're not doing that, then you're not responding, maybe hurting your case. It's important for you to understand if this is happening. In the follow-up emails from your lawyer's office, there may be information about this already, but then you may not have read those emails because you have been trying to avoid the situation, simply hiding from it. Call your lawyer's office. They will understand and figure out how to help you. One approach we sometimes take, is to have a meeting with her client, with my law clerk sitting across the desk from you, you two working through the draft together. She asks questions, guides you, and you essentially complete the draft together. That may help you. That is likely an option at your lawyer's office as well. Look into it. The key is not to procrastinate endlessly. Reach out for help. Question number five, can I represent myself in court? Here is my answer, yes. In Ontario Family Court, there is no rule of any kind that a party to a court case, someone who is then referred to as a litigant, has to be represented by a lawyer. Today, family courts are filled with people who are representing themselves. It is one option you have. The question to ask yourself is whether this is the best option for you. And There are different reasons why people choose to represent themselves. Cost is often one of those issues. From my perspective, representing yourself in a court case is a very significant undertaking. It's not an easy thing to do effectively. And my saying so has nothing to do with smarts, intelligence, nothing like that. The point is that without being aware of it, you may be prejudicing your own case by representing yourself. And I discussed the word prejudice earlier in response to one of the earlier questions. In other words, by representing yourself, you may not be giving your case its best shot. I think it's important for litigants in Ontario to know, self-represented litigants, that there are options available to them. For example, they can have a lawyer help them with or give them advice about only certain parts of their legal case or only from time to time. These services are called limited-scope legal services and sometimes also referred to as unbundled services. Instead of having a lawyer represent you for your entire case, you and the lawyer agree that he or she will help you with specific parts of the case, which you two define together. For example, you may need a lawyer to come to court with you for a specific hearing. You are representing yourself in the case as a whole, and you remain responsible for your own case, but you can hire a lawyer to attend that hearing only on your behalf or to prepare materials for you for that hearing only. There are many options available here, or you could have a lawyer coach you before a mediation session, or, for example, review an offer to settle you received. If you are interested in learning more about limited-scope legal services for family law cases, I encourage you to visit the following website. www. FamilyLawLSS.ca. The LSS is like LauraSamSam.ca. The website will not only give you more information about this option, it also has a roster of lawyers who provide these services in Ontario. I am one of those lawyers on the roster because I firmly believe that limited-scope services are a viable option for people who are self-represented. And I'm involved with the project itself. The project is called Ontario's Family Law Limited Scope Services Project. Take a look at the notes for this podcast if you were not able to take down the website. I will include it there. So the overall answer to the question posed is yes, you can represent yourself in court. Just consider carefully before you do so whether this is in fact the best option for you. Many self-represented litigants, I find, think that a judge will help them out if they're doing something wrong in their case. This is not the right approach to take. A family court judge can't help either side, and that includes a self-represented party who may not know the law or the rules of evidence. Before deciding to represent yourself in court, ask yourself, do I have a choice about this? If you really have no choice, consider tapping into resources like limited scope legal services, for example. Question number six, what is an ex parte motion? Here's my answer. There's actually a definition of this Latin phrase, but I won't cite it here because I don't think it's really helpful to us. But before I explain what an ex parte motion is, you may want to know what a motion is in the first place. It is a hearing which these days may very well take place by video conference, which can be described as a mini-trial, except it is not generally one which involves live witnesses, for example, or the complexity or length of a trial. A motion is a hearing, which usually takes place once a court case has started, which deals with either one, or several issues in a family law case which need to be addressed before trial. Generally speaking, evidence on a motion comes before the court in written form by way of affidavit. What is an affidavit? It is a statement of facts made by the affiant, the person swearing to the content. So back to the motion, the evidence is usually in affidavit form and there may be other forms of documentary evidence. For example, bank records, letters, uh, promissory notes, uh, report cards and so on. The lawyers or the parties themselves, if they are self-represented, make submissions to the court either orally or in writing. These submissions are designed to summarize the issues from their client's perspective and to draw the judge's attention to important parts of the evidence. It's important to remember, though, that the evidence itself is in written form and the lawyer making submissions cannot bring new evidence into those submissions. So, let's go back to the ex parte motion. What I've just described so far is a motion in which two lawyers and two parties participate in a hearing. This type of hearing is called on notice. In other words, everyone knows about it in advance. An ex parte motion is one which is brought without notice, meaning that one party comes before the court with an issue or a number of issues without letting the other side know they're doing so. In such situations, there must be very compelling reasons to have a judge grant an order. Uh, So this is essentially a description of what an ex-parta motion is. And there are many more elements to such motions, including reasons for which they might be brought, what happens when ex-parta orders are granted, and so on. Those elements should be considered based on the specific circumstances of each case, which is unique. So getting into them would really go beyond the scope of this podcast. Question number seven. I have asked my lawyer to give me an estimate of how much my family law case will cost but they say that it is virtually impossible to give any reasonable estimate. Why is that? Here's my answer. When clients ask me this question, I often respond with this analogy. It's like asking a cab driver how much the trip will cost before telling them where you are going. My response is not meant to be critical of the question or to suggest it's unreasonable. My answer is meant to illustrate that one of the reasons it is difficult to provide such an estimate is because we really don't know about the destination, so to speak. We don't know how long the case will take, for example, how it will conclude. Is it by settlement, by trial, through mediation, at a four-way meeting? We do not know how active or intense it will be along the way. Let me give you two examples to illustrate my point. If two people separate and they sit down over coffee and agree on the main issues in their case, just like the allegorical couple I presented in the episode called A Journey to a Place Called Apart, reasonable costs are more likely. The couple talks. One of them then goes to their lawyer and asks them to prepare a draft separation agreement, and that agreement is then sent to the other lawyer for review with their client. Minor revisions are made, and then the agreement is signed. Again, reasonable, manageable costs. If I have a general idea that this is how the case will roll out when the client first retains me, because, for example, That is what the parties discussed, and they already have an agreement in principle on the main issues. Then I'm in a decent position to give some educated estimates about potential cost from beginning to end. Of course, this estimate might change if the initial plan changes in any significant way, and there are any complications. But let's consider another example. A client comes to me and it appears the issues will be legally complex or the parties do not get along at all, and this might turn out to be a high-conflict case. It is much more difficult to estimate costs in a situation like that. If despite the initial signs of conflict, the parties are able to put their differences aside and after further negotiations, for example, are able to enter into a separation agreement, then that is one set of costs. But if it turns out that they agree on virtually nothing, and to make things even more difficult, the lawyer hired by the other side is not settlement-minded, The case may unfortunately have to go to trial. That would mean dramatically higher expense. The point here is that most of the time it is impossible to predict at the beginning of a case how it will roll out, how complex and protracted it will be, how long it will take and how many different steps may have to be taken along the way including motions to deal with urgent issues, which the parties can't resolve through dialogue. I hope this provides you with some more understanding of why an estimate as to costs may be difficult at the beginning. There are points in the case where an estimate may be easier to make. What do I mean by that? A wife, for example, has to bring a motion for child and spousal support. Her lawyer knows what evidence will be required for the motion, generally speaking, and can also anticipate all of the tasks which will have to be completed to get the motion before the court. In that circumstance... The lawyer may be in a position to make a general estimate of the expected cost of the motion, give her a range of cost, for example. There are lawyers who complete tasks based on block fees. A lawyer may tell you they would charge a flat fee of X dollars to bring that motion for child and spouse support we spoke about you may want to ask if that is an option. So those are some issues related to estimating costs. Question number eight. I had a consultation with a lawyer, but I did not retain her. Is our conversation confidential? Here's my answer. Yes. That lawyer cannot disclose anything you shared with her in the meeting except in very specific circumstances. Generally speaking, if there is imminent danger to a child or an adult, or if ordered to do so by the court, again, quite rare. The information remains confidential, even if you do not retain her. Question number nine. What is the office of the children's lawyer? Here's my answer the ocl which is how we commonly refer to the office of the children's lawyer is an ontario government-funded law office it's a part of the ministry of the attorney general which provides legal services targeted at protecting children's personal and property rights for children under the age of 18. so what role might the OCL play in a family law case? Well, the OCL conducts clinical assessments of families in the context of custody and access disputes, for example, but also provides legal representation, their own lawyer to children under 18. So who pays for the OCL's services? The taxpayers do. The services of the OCL are free to the parties in a family law case, provided the OCL agrees to accept the case. It is the OCL and not the court who ultimately decides whether they will become involved in a particular case or not. This discretion is directly related to the fact that thousands of litigants want to use the free services of the OCL, and uh, they apply for the OCL's assistance each day. Based on a review of intake forms submitted by the parties, the OCL decides which cases qualify for their services. So to clarify the point, a family court judge can ask that the OCL review a case and decide if they will become involved. But a family law judge cannot force the OCL to become involved. Question number 10. If we hire a family mediator, will he or she make decisions in our case if we cannot agree? Here's my answer. No. A mediator is not a decision maker. They facilitate help in the discussions about the issues in dispute, but they do not make any decisions if the parties don't agree. Next week's episode is about family mediation, so you may want to tune in uh, then for more information about this process which I support wholeheartedly because I'm a family mediator myself. I hope that you heard something of interest to you today. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app We'll make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.